back to another episode of Search, Ponder, and Pray, um, a podcast where we try to follow the Come Follow Me uh, outline provided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, just a little warning, I try not to do every chapter and every lesson just because I want I don't want this to replace your personal scripture study. Um, I think there's wonderful things to talk about and amazing things to talk about on each chapter. Um, but a lot of times I feel like if you will have a chance to study it on your own and build a personal relationship with the Lord, that will be better than any podcast episode that I could record. Um, so I encourage you to do that. Um, but yeah, welcome back. I hope you're all having a wonderful week. I hope you had a good weekend. Um, yeah, and let's go ahead and jump right in. If there's any new listeners, welcome. Um, if they're for all your old, all the old listeners, welcome as well. Uh, glad you came back. I hope that um, I hope that you find this podcast somewhat edifying, and and are able to use it as a springboard to help you have a greater personal study, and to be able to share the gospel with your friends and family. All right. Uh, let's jump in, but before we get started, as usual, we will start with a word of prayer, because this is Search, Ponder, and Pray. So, I'll go ahead and say that. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee so very much for this wonderful day. We thank Thee for um, this coming spring, and the opportunity we have to return outside and to work with our hands in the earth and the soil, and to grow our gardens. We thank thee, dear Father, for the wonderful general conference we had not too long ago, for the things we learned there. We thank thee, Father, for all the many blessings that thou hast bestowed us with, especially the scriptures and our ability to pray. Help us, dear Lord, to please come closer to thee. Please help us to be stronger. Please help us to be more diligent. Please bless our families with the health and the strength that they need. Help us to be able to bring the Spirit into our homes and to our families, that they may be protected from the evil one and from the wickedness of the world. Please forgive us of our sins and open our minds and hearts now that as we study we might see those things that thou wouldst have us learn. We pray for these things ever so humbly, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All righty. Well, today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 18. Um, so if you're following along, jump there. We will also be using the New Testament New Testament student manual. Um, if you're an old, if you're a returning listener, I shouldn't say an old listener. If you're if you're a returning listener, uh, you're aware that I that I like to use that. Uh, it's a it's the the study help that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints puts out for Institute um, students. Uh, you can find that by going to the either your Gospel Library app or the church website, going to the Gospel Library, then going to uh, Books and Study, and then going to Institute, and then scrolling through the many, many study helps that they have, and finding the New Testament student manual. Not the teacher manual, the student manual. All right, that's enough of that. Let's dive in. So, chapter 18, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called and 
And Jesus called a little child unto him, and said, Let him, and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's jump over to the student manual. as a section on that. To become great in the kingdom of God, we must become like a little child. Responding to a question about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ emphasized that greatest in the kingdom of heaven is achieved by being converted and humbling oneself as a little child. Scriptures record that other desirable qualities of little children include being submissive, meek, patient, full of love, alive in Christ, without sin. President Henry B. Eyring of the First Presidency taught, To be like a little child is not to be childish. It is to be like the Savior, who prayed to his Father for strength to be able to do his will, and then did it. Our natures must be changed to become as a child. That comes from the April uh, conference, April 2006 General Conference uh, talk titled, As a Child. President Howard W. Hunter taught that true greatness is, daily, is a daily process of giving one's life to the Savior and doing one's best to live the gospel. It is doing well the things God has ordained to be the common lot of all mankind. Such things include the thousands of little deeds and tasks of service and sacrifice that constitute the giving or losing of one's life for others and for the Lord. They include gaining a knowledge of our Father in heaven and his gospel. They include bringing others into the faith and fellowship of his kingdom. To do one's best in the face of commonplace struggles of life, and possibly of the, in the face of failures, and to continue to endure and preserve with the ongoing difficulties of life. When those struggles and tasks contribute to the progress and happiness of others and eternal salvation of oneself, this is true greatness. Let us remember that doing the things that have been ordained by God to be important and needful and necessary, even though the world may view them as unimportant and insignificant, will eventually lead us to true greatness. And that comes from the April 1982 General Conference, a talk titled, True Greatness. So, it's very much being laid out here to us that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, oftentimes you have to give up... <clears throat> Maybe not even just, maybe not give up, but you need to seek after the greatness that comes from the kingdom of God, and understand that many, many, many times that will not line up with the greatness that is found in the world. It it follows along the line of what what shall it profit what shall what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his soul? What would be the point of going and doing and becoming the greatest whatever it is in the world if at the same time you're not able to gain the salvation you need to continue on then you you've turned your your greatness into a match when struck it burns brightly for a short while but then burns out Whereas if, you were, whereas if you will become like the Savior and seek to humble yourself, humble ourselves, I should say. <laughs> if, we seek, if we seek to humble ourselves and be submissive to the Lord and do His will 
and be courageous in doing those small, simple things that we've all been asked to do. As we continue to do that, we will build a wonderful community, and the kingdom of God will grow. And then we will find that as we become great in the kingdom of God, we don't so much care about that. We we do because we want to be we want to be saved and we want our families to be saved and whatnot, but it's not about greatness or position or anything like that. It's about our relationship with the Lord and his relationship with us and our families and how we are drawing closer to him. We will be given that new heart that he talks about. If we will seek that. Let's jump back up just a little bit. Um, at the very beginning, uh, Jesus taught his disciples principles to use in guiding his church. As recorded in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 22, the Savior taught his disciples important principles that would help them guide the church following his death and resurrection. These principles include the following. Effective leaders are personally converted. See verse 3. They're humble. Verses 2 through 4. Repent of their wrongdoing. Verses 7 through 9 are mindful of children, verse 10, seek out those who are lost, see verses 11 through 14, handle the trespasses of others sensitively and discreetly, verses 15 through 17, are unified and seek the Lord's assistance in their work, verses 19 through, 19 through 20, and forgive others, verses 21 through 22. That's a pretty comprehensive list. For an effective leader, Christ laid out exactly what you need to be in this chapter. I would say, I would say, even if we are not personally, um, if we personally don't hold a leadership position, maybe we're not on the ward council, or we're not a bishop, or we're not any of those kind of things. Maybe, maybe we're just uh, the ward organist, or maybe we're just the nursery leader, or maybe we're just, you know. Maybe we're just a gospel doctrine teacher, or maybe all we do is we take care of the, the bulletin each week. This is still something we can follow and apply to ourselves. All right, let's move on. Verse 5. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, but receiveth me? But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe, it, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if any man hand or foot offend thee, cut, if if sorry, wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands and two feet, to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes, to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you. That in, he that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So that's a very interesting little section right there. Um, that he talks about, you know, if, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. 
it's better it's better to go halt or maimed into heaven than to not go into heaven at all. It makes rather than chopping off our hands or plucking out our eyes, it would be better to look at some of the struggles we have in our life. Maybe we do struggle with uh let's say um let's say pornography. Let's say we struggle with pornography. We find ourselves viewing that too much. Would it not be better for us to maybe get rid of our internet and get a flip phone and be ridiculed because you have this dumb little flip phone that only can call and text and you have no internet? What do you do all day? I'm not damaging my soul. That's what I'm doing. Or maybe we have... Uh, maybe we have an addiction to watching mm, bad movies. Maybe we cancel our subscriptions, get rid of Netflix. Maybe we get rid of our TV altogether. Maybe we have a bad habit of gossiping about people on social media. Maybe we delete our social media account. And yes, Yes, I, the church has said we can use social media. You know, they, they encourage us to use social media to spread the gospel. But it is better for us to enter into heaven, halt or maimed, than to not enter in at all. It is better for us to handicap ourselves in ways that won't help us here physically, but will help us spiritually. If by blocking off those avenues we can we can cull our sins in our life, why would we not do that? It makes me I mean, it makes me think of a, a part in in Star Wars when Kylo Ren is talking in the ninth movie. Kylo Ren's talking to his his father Han Solo, and he. His father, you know, his father's past is dead, and he comes back as a ghost, and he's talking to him. And Kylo Ren knows what he, Kylo Ben, Ben knows what he has to do to come back. And he tells his father, I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I have the strength to do it. And his father says, you do. And then he takes his lightsaber, and he throws it, which is the representation of himself himself as the mighty Kylo Ren, and he throws it as hard as he can into the ocean. And now he has no lightsaber. Now he has no weapon. Now he can't go back. Or if he wants to go back, it'll be very difficult for him to. And by doing so, he has put himself in a position to get better. To progress. That is what the Lord is asking of us to do here. To make the, the sacrifices required to do what we must do in order that we can return to live with Him again. What really is the most important? King, I think it was King Lamoni, or maybe it was King Lamoni's father, who said, I will give up all my sins, even, I'll add, <laughs> even my favorite ones. To know thee. What sins do we have that are our favorite sins that we would be willing to give up? 
What is it that we hold more important than the Lord? Is it sloth? We, uh, I know that I know that I should go visit them. I know I should go do my ministering. I know I should. I, I, I know I should contact these people. But mm, tonight's just not the night. I got you know. I I want. It's a busy day. I know, I know the Spirit was talking to me about maybe going and doing that, but I just, I, I'm tired. I'm just going to sit, I'm just going to sit on the couch tonight, watch some TV. We're putting ourselves in dangerous situations there. The Lord has a multitude, a, a mighty multitude of blessings that He wishes to give to us. But if we've put ourselves in a situation where we will not put him first, he cannot bless us with the, with the same effectiveness that we would like. And it shouldn't be about the blessings. It should be about our salvation and returning to him. But baby steps, I understand that, baby steps. If we need to do it for the blessings, do it by all means, do it for the blessings. Start there. Get moving. There are great and wonderful blessings out there for you. But I promise you that as you continue on, as you start the journey, and as you press forward and progress, eventually those blessings will become a byproduct of what you really want. To have the Savior with you in your life daily. The Lord tells us in verse 7, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs that offenses come. We know that life's going to be difficult. It doesn't, the world's going to be full of problems, heartaches, trials, struggles. It's going to be full of those things. But woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. It doesn't have to be us. That is a, that is a fallacy that is purported by the devil, that is purported by Satan and the world. That, well, bad things happen, and so it, sometimes if it's me, well, everyone's doing this. Everyone's doing this. I mean, if, if I don't do it, then I'm going to, you know, everyone else is doing it. Why can't I just do it? Woe unto the world for the offenses that come. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the, offenses, the offense cometh. It doesn't have to be us. It shouldn't be us. We, we call ourselves disciples of Christ. We should act like disciples of Christ. Verse 11. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye if a man have an hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the, the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so and, and if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more for that of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Um... Oh, I forgot to read this on uh, in the New Testament student manual. Uh, a warning not to offend little ones. Uh, 
Though Jesus was speaking to leaders of his day when he issued a stern warning not to offend little ones, the message recorded in Matthew eighteen five through ten applies to all to all of us. We must not we must not cause anyone seeking greater understanding of the gospel plan to stumble in their faith, nor should we do anything to block their progress toward eternal life. <clears throat> So right there, it's broadening the definition of children and little ones, not just young people, not just the youth, but anyone who is new to the faith, who is beginning to grow in the faith, pretty much any of us. If we cause anyone to stumble in their spiritual growth, in their spiritual seeking, if we cause anyone to, uh, to falter because of the things we say or the offenses we give out, we, are, we lie in danger of these warnings. Uh, Elder Bruce R. McConkie taught about this warning. He says, quote, For few crimes are as gross and wicked as that of teaching false doctrine and leading souls away from God and salvation. If eternal joy is the reward given to those who teach the truth and bring souls to salvation, shall not those who teach false doctrines and lead souls to damnation receive their reward, etern their reward eternal remorse? It is better to die and be denied the blessings of continued mortal existence than to live and lead souls from the truth, thereby gaining eternal damnation to oneself. I once heard it called um, spiritual terrorism when we partake in, when we practice these things, when we uh, teach doctrines that explicitly pull men away from Christ. Either they pull them to ourselves or they pull them to some new philosophy or something or something like that i've heard it called spiritual terrorism and it's the sin that alma the younger and the sons of mosiah were taking part in uh, it's the sin that nahor the sin that a lot of those uh, villains in the book of mormon took part in and it's something that god will not stand for you may get away with it in this life but you will suffer for it in the next it's not something I want to beat around the bush about at all, because it is very, very dangerous. We cannot, we cannot bend the doctrine of God to fit our own will. If we do so, we risk our own salvation by blinding ourselves to falsehoods. If on top of that, we then teach those false teachings, we spread the false doctrine of our own mind, we are in serious, serious danger. Let's jump back to where we were reading. Um, oh, verse 13, and if, it's, and if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine, which went not astray. Even so... It, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And if, but if he will not hear thee, then take, thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them 
of my Father which is in heaven. For there are two, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. All right, so the law of witnesses. Um, the Savior's teaching in Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20 referred to the law of witnesses. The foundation of this law, which, re which required, the two, required that two or three witnesses establish or decide certain matters, was set forth in Deuteronomy 19, chapter 19, verse 15. The Savior's teaching also established a pattern of keys of authority being given first to Peter, James, and John on the Mount, Tran Mount of Transfiguration, and then later to all the apostles. This pattern was followed in our day, and when the keys of the kingdom were given first to Joseph Smith and then later to the twelve apostles. So, that's a little like, little backstory as to where the, that uh, the law of witnesses all all come from. All right, then in verse twenty one, then Peter came to him and said, "Lord, how oft shall I for, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times." Jesus saith unto him. I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. This is a hard, this is a hard one for most of us um, to get into our heads. Uh, it, so in the New Testament student manual, forgiving others seventy times, Elder Bruce R. McConkie explained that the what the meaning of Peter's question about forgiving others to the Savior's response, quote, Rabbinism called upon called upon the offender to initiate a course of reconciliation with his brother and specified that forgiveness should not be extended more than two more than three times to any offender his soul was yet not his soul was his soul as yet not afire with the holy spirit peter asked a question that as he must have then supposed assumed a far more liberal rule than the imposed by the rabbis Lord, how often shall I forgive? Shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus answered, "I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven, meaning there is no limit to the number of times that men should forgive their brethren. That is something that a lot of us, a lot of us struggle with. And this next story that we're going to jump into um, is going to kind of break it down for us. But the idea that we, again, this is a worldly teaching that, well, this person has offended us. We need to, we can't just let them keep, continue to trample all over us. We don't just let that keep happening to us. We don't just, okay, sure. Maybe, maybe you remove yourself from the situation. You don't just stay there and, 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 and keep pushing forward in, in a detrimental situation, but you always forgive that person always you forgive them and not just forgive you forgive and forget and you move forward with life and you let the lord deal with whatever has to happen because the lord continues to forgive your sins how many times have we committed the same sin over and over and over and over more than seven times more than 70 times seven and he continues to forgive us. And we want him to continue, for, continue to forgive us. So we have to continue to forgive others. The Lord told us in the Mount, on, on the, uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, on the Sermon on the Mount, he, said, he told us, judge righteous judgment, for with what, that judgment that ye judge, so shall ye be judged. So, 
if the, if the same judgment we deal out is the same judgment the Lord will deal to us, how scary is it if we say, well, I give him one or two chances, but then after that, I, I just can't trust you anymore, and I'm not going to trust you anymore, and I, I'm not going to forgive you after that. How frightening is that? How certain are you that you can only commit one a sin two or three times? Because all it will take is a fourth time and you're done. By your own standard. By your own standard of mercy. Let's jump into the next, um, next story, next parable, and that should help to expound it a little bit for us. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, who would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. For as much as he could, for as much as he had not to pay, his lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down. Okay, let's let's break this down. Let's break this down to just kind of make it a little more a little more understanding. Okay, so imagine a world you work for a, a, a large, a huge corporation. You work for a very large corporation. This uh, maybe it's an investment firm. They have lent you somewhere of the, of the magnitude of millions of dollars you've had you have millions of dollars in your account to invest now somewhere along the line you made a bad investment something went wrong and you lost these millions of dollars okay now you come to the to the to your to your boss and your boss says all right it's time for your your quarterly review um this is how much money we've put into your account. How much money do you have now that we that you can show to us? And you say, and how terrible, how terrible that would have to be to tell this this person, I've got nothing. And maybe I even have less than nothing. I may even be in the hole. How terrifying would that be? And then in this in this world, now that they come to you and say, okay, well, not only are we going to come and take your house and everything you own to try and pay back the company, these millions of dollars, but now we're going to sell you and your family into indentured servitude until that payment is paid off. And it probably won't be paid off until you die, your wife dies, your children pass away. It will take that long for it to be worked off. And maybe even your great, even your grandchildren, maybe even your great grandchildren will continue to have to serve in service, in servitude, indentured servitude. To, as they work, they earn the money. That money goes directly to the company to pay off that debt. How terrible. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. So the servant says, <clears throat> look, I know, I know this is a bad situation. I know that we're in, in, in a bad spot, but I promise you, you give me more time. Let me have a little more time and I will pay it back. I will get the money. I will pay it back. I'll find a way. But the, the master doesn't say, okay, go do that. He doesn't say, all right. 
I expect it next quarter. I expect you to have this money back next quarter. No, what the master says is, I forgive you. Your accounts are no longer at zero. You don't longer owe me that debt. If you will try harder, if you will repent, if you will turn your life around and try harder, I extend to you that mercy. How absolutely glorious is it that the Savior will do that for us, and not just once, but he will do it every day. That is what the atonement of Jesus Christ provides for us. Not the atonement, but what Jesus Christ can offer us by having gone and done and having performed the atonement. He knows your struggles. He knows your weaknesses. He knows why you're in that situation. He's very understanding and he will forgive you the debt if that is what you seek. Now, for the second half of the lesson, verse 28. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he said, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me, pay me what that thou owest. So now you get done with your quarterly review. You just had this whole thing. Maybe it's the next day. You're at lunch and you see your coworker over there who owes you a hundred bucks. You lent him a hundred bucks for a show or who knows what. He went, went and bought some food. He asked you for a hundred dollars and he, he, you, he, you loaned it to him. And it's been a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months and he hasn't paid you back. And you go over there in a fit of rage now. You go over in a fit of rage and you say, listen, you're no good. You're no good slug. Listen here, you owe me a hundred dollars. Give me my money now. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. All right. So he's given, he, the, this, this man who owes you money falls down and says, I, I'm really sorry. I know I owe you that money. I'm working on it. I will get it back to you. I promise. I promise I will get it back to you. Just give me a little time. Just give me a little more time. I haven't forgotten. I know I still owe you money. I'm sorry. But in whatever rage or fit of anger we happen to be in at the time, we don't let him go. We don't say, oh, well, it's okay. Let's, you know, we'll, you pay me back on your, when, you, when you get the chance. Which is, which if we required him to pay us back like that is still not the same level of mercy that the Lord has given to us by saying, I forgive you the debt. I forgive you that. Go on with your life and don't let it burden you anymore. That's not the same level, but it's still better than what the servant did here by saying, no, you owe me this money. You've stolen from me. I, I'm putting up charges against you. I'm throwing you in prison. I'm having you arrested. I'm having you put into prison because you stole from me now. You haven't held up your end of the bargain. You're going to jail. That is very much the opposite end of the spectrum of mercy. Not even the middle ground of just, okay, well, you know, it's okay. You have time. Just pay me back when you can. Which, like I said, is still not the same level of mercy that the Lord, the Lord gave to you by saying, I forgive you the debt. 
even if all that debt was, was $100, but it wasn't. It's millions. The Lord has forgiven us of greater grievances than we can fully understand. Grievances that we hardly ever could be able, able to commit against each other. It's one thing to say something rude to someone. Yes, that's an offense. It's, some, it's one thing to steal money from someone. Yes, that's an offense. It is another thing entirely to have the being who gave you life, who gave you everything you currently have, and then to turn your back selfishly upon him to seek after his opponent, to consume those gifts that he's given you upon your lusts, to use them as some way to pull yourself further from him and to throw dirt in his face. But he will forgive us for that because he knows that we're weak. He knows that it's a growing it's a growing time for us. He knows this is difficult. And so he will extend to us that mercy. That mercy which cost him far more. It cost him his only begotten son in the flesh. That was the price. But he will extend that to us. And so the Lord says to us, will you please, please just forgive each other? Or at least, at the very least, grant each other a little more time to forgive, to come back, to become anew, to repent, to become a new creature. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Your co-workers see what's happened and they know a lot of the story. They, they know that your account was in the red. They know where you were at. They know that the boss forgave you all this stuff and then they see you throw your, your co-worker in jail and word gets around and the boss hears about it. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my, fa- shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. The Lord lays it out very plainly, very clearly for us, what he expects us to do when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to mercy. Let's jump over to the New Testament student manual, and then we can start wrapping up. Following Peter's question about how often he should forgive others, the Savior taught his disciples further about the seed about the need, excuse me, to forgive by giving the parable of the merc- of the unmerciful servant. In his parable, the king represents the Lord. The first servant represents each of us who stand in debt to the, to the Lord, and the pe- and the people, sorry, and the second servant represents anyone who may have offended us. The parable refers to ten thousand talents and a hundred pence. During the first century A.D., it is estimated that ten thousand talents equal one million, or yeah, no, a hundred million denarii. One denarius was a typical day's wage for a common laborer. 
if the laborer worked 300 days, 300 days a year, it would take about 33 years for him to be able to purchase one talent. It would take over 300,000 years to earn 10,000 talents, the sum, the sum of the servant's debt. By comparison, a, t a 100 pence owed by the fellow servant is, uh, is about 1 million times less than the debt owed by the first servant. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles recalled a time when, he, when, as a student in an institute class, he learned the value of the money mentioned in the parable of the unmerciful student and came to understand some of the eternal truths taught in the parable. He says, quote, The teacher noted that the 100 pence forgiveness, which, which we were all expected to to give one another and acknowledge as a fair as a pretty fair amount of money was now preciously little to ask in light of the ten thousand talent forgiveness christ had extended to us the latter debt our debt was an astronomical number the teacher reminded us almost in, in, almost incapable of comprehension but that he said was exactly the savior's point in his teaching an essential part of the parable. Jesus had intended that his hearers sense just a little of the eternal scope and profound gift of his mercy, his forgiveness, his atonement. For the first, for the first time in my life, I, I remember feeling something of the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for me, a gift bordering to this day on incomprehensibility, but a gift that made me, for the first time, seriously consider my need to forgive other people and to be unfailingly generous regarding their needs and, th and their needs, their feelings and their needs and their circumstances. Uh, one of the messages of the parable of the unmerciful servant is that we must forgive ourselves, is that we must forgive others if we, if we are to receive forgiveness from the Lord. President Gordon B. Hinckley also taught this principle, pleading with us to be more forgiving toward those who sin against us. The great atonement was the su supreme act of forgiveness. The magnitude of that atonement is beyond our ability to, to completely understand. I know only that it happened, and that it was for me and you, and that it was for me and for you. The suffering was so great, the agony so intense that none of us can comprehend it when the Savior offered himself as a ransom for the sins of all mankind. It is through him that we gain forgiveness. It is through him that we come to certain promises that all, man, that all mankind will be granted and the blessing of salvation with resurrection from the dead. May God help us to be a little kinder, showing forth greater forbearance, to be more forgiving, more willing to walk the second mile, to reach down and lift up those who lift up those who may have sinned but have brought forth the fruits of repentance, to lay aside old grudges and nurture them no more. While serving as a, uh, well, that, that comes, while serving as a member of the presidency of the seventy, Elder, da Elder David E. Sorensen taught that when we forgive others. that when we forgive others, we let go of the past and move with faith and love into the future. When someone has hurt us, when someone has hurt us or those we care about, that pain can all, almost be overwhelming. 
It can feel as if the pain or the injustice is the most important thing in the world, and that we have no choice but to seek vengeance. But Christ, the Prince of Peace, teaches us a better way. It can be very difficult to forgive someone the harm they've done they've done us but when we do but when we do we open ourselves up to a better future no longer does someone else's wrongdoing control our course when we forgive others it frees us to choose how we will live our own lives forgiveness means that problems of the past no longer dictate our destinies we can focus on the future with god's love with God's love in our hearts. And that's what the Lord wants for us. The Lord doesn't want us to be burdened by malice. He doesn't want us to be burdened down with the sins and the hardships of the world. He doesn't want us to focus on the darkness in the world. The Savior wants us to focus on Him, the mercy He extends, the love He extends. It's not about getting even and making ourselves great in this world. It's about humbling ourselves, becoming as little children, being willing to forgive and forget and move forward to live the joyous life that Christ sets out for us. The world is a dark and dreary place, sure. But our lives don't have to be. We can live gloriously in the arms of Christ if we will turn to Him and do as He bids us. I testify that this is true. I testify that immense blessings and wonderful wonderful blessings, wonderful opportunities lie before us as we come to know Him, as we seek Him, as we seek to live as He did. We will see the fruits of forgiveness, the fruits of repentance, the fruits of the gospel spring up in our lives as we seek to follow Him and live in His way, not the world's way, not what the world has told us is His way, but what Christ himself has told us is his way. Mercy, compassion, and love. I testify that this is a difficult road, that it will take a long time, and it will take the help of the Savior for us to be able to live it properly through prayer and scripture study, and possibly fasting, wrestling with the Lord and ourselves but I testify that this is the path and that the Lord has told us that while it may be difficult, His yoke is easy and His burden is light, especially when compared to trying to shoulder the the struggles and trials of the world alone. I testify that this is true. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.